ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hi there. I'm Laura Ross Brautellum, a podcast producer here at Foreign Policy, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. First, I want to thank Rob Sachs so much for filling in. I actually had COVID. That's why I wasn't here. Thankfully, I'm feeling better now. Anyway, this week, we wanted to share a new podcast from Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. It's called Allies, and it's about the U.S. Special Immigrant Visa Program, how it failed so many Afghans after Kabul fell, and how Afghan partners fought to escape. Before we get to today's featured episode, here's Bryce Clem for a preview. I'm Bryce Clem. I'm an associate editor at Lawfare. And I'm also the host of Lawfare's latest narrative podcast series called Allies, a deep dive into the lives of Afghan interpreters and translators throughout the U.S.'s 20-year war. And we cover some efforts to protect those translators through something called the Special Immigrant Visa Program or SIV program. So Lawfare does narrative podcast series from time to time. We currently have one on the on January 6th called The Aftermath. We've done one on the Mueller Report, and we did one on a book called After Trump. And this past October, our executive editor, Ben Wittes, asked us to think start thinking about a potential for any new narrative series. And I was still really thinking about the withdrawal from Afghanistan and, and what everybody witnessed at the Kabul airport. So I was trying to find a vehicle or device to begin to unravel America's involvement in Afghanistan. And I was really, frankly, just personally curious about what happened and how did this lead up to it. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized that Afghan interpreters and translators were so essential to the United States, the United States's mission throughout the 20 year war. And they had themselves been undergoing a slow motion evacuation through this special immigrant visa program for over a decade. And so I pitched this at a meeting in October, and I'm, I was told to sort of look into it more. And um, our executive editor, Ben Wittes, told me to find a way to pitch it uh, without using the words special immigrant visa. And so that's sort of how we we got started on the project. And over the past seven, eight months, we've been talking to former interpreters, translators, uh, veterans, lawyers, advocacy groups to really start to start to unpack this story of Afghan interpreters and translators and the U.S.'s effort to protect them. The ultimate goal of this series, from our perspective, my co-producer Max Johnston and I, is to connect legislation 
two lived experiences. And in this case, that's the Special Immigrant Visa Program. And one thing our listeners might notice is that each episode title is lifted directly from the legislation establishing the program or executive orders um, that affected the SIV program. So when we talk about the challenges around making this story, it was trying to do exactly that, trying to connect the policy with the lived experiences. And, and lucky for us, you know, a, a ton of people have been really involved in this issue for so many years. And they were more than willing to share their stories with us. And they were extremely generous. You know, one person, Matt Zeller, he has been working on this SIV issue since his interpreter saved his life. And, and you'll hear that in later episodes in the series. You'll hear that story. Organizations like the International Refugee Assistance Project, IRAP, they were extremely helpful in connecting us with some of their former clients who had been SIV recipients. And most importantly, you know, the, the Afghan interpreters and translators themselves who were willing to share their stories with us. Hopefully we've, we've done it some justice in this series. You know, something that I assumed coming into this series was a lot of the people who were involved in the SIV program on the advocacy and, and legal side of it. I assumed, you know, these people must have been experts and refugee and immigration experts their whole lives. But what we really found is quite the opposite. You know, in a lot of instances, these were normal people, be it a veteran, a law student or something that just recognized this problem and tried to help it. And another thing that really surprised me was within the special immigrant visa process, you know, there's there's really no formal training that can prepare you for advocating on behalf of a client like that. And that's something that we get into in, in some of the later episodes and, and talking about the perspective of someone who was trying to help um, these applicants go through it. So I'd say, you know, one thing that this really this project really drove home for me is that a lot of average people did a lot of very extraordinary things to make this program work. And I think with the, what a lot of people saw this past August in Kabul at the airport was really a culmination of a lot of those people who recognized what was going wrong. And, and it wasn't just the advocates, the SIV advocates for years. It was it was in a lot of cases, people that had served in Afghanistan and just were in touch with the people that they had served with who were Afghan. And those informal efforts to get people out were really extraordinary. And it's something that we try to capture in the series. In the first episode, we open at the Kabul airport this past August, and then we rewind to even before 9-11. And something that we're, we're, we're hoping the listener feels is that the U.S. was really linguistically and culturally unprepared to invade a place like Afghanistan. So Naturally, the U.S. government began rapidly in hiring these interpreters and translators who became really crucial to the U.S.'s war effort. And so that's something that we that we try to drive home in the first episode. This story, more broadly speaking, isn't just about Afghanistan, although it's important for people to not forget about Afghanistan. But it's also about how the U.S. treats its partners abroad. And something that I hope listeners ask themselves during this is, is how should the U.S. treat its partners abroad? And how can we make our government reflect those the best of our impulses? That was Bryce Clem. And now, here's the first episode from Allies. A warning for listeners. This podcast features stories about war, terrorism, and violence. It's important to hear, but it can also be disturbing. After two decades, the U.S. was getting out. President Trump had negotiated a deal with the Taliban, promising a departure of U.S. troops. In spring 2021, President Joe Biden let the whole world know that he wasn't reversing course. 
American troops would be out of Afghanistan by the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I'm now the fourth United States president to preside over American troop presence in Afghanistan. I will not pass this responsibility onto a fifth. After consulting closely with our allies and partners, I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. Journalist Matthew Akins was covering the withdrawal for the New York Times. He had been reporting from Afghanistan since 2008. He says with the Americans leaving, nearly every Afghan he talked to had no clue what was in store for them. Some who worked for the U.S. government didn't even know if they'd be able to get out. Others wondered what life would look like if the Afghan government collapsed. So the clock was ticking. People were very anxious, very desperate to leave. But still, very few people had any sense that the end was that near. Rumors of the Taliban's advance had been trickling into Kabul for months. Now, they were closing in on the capital city. Well, I think that the Afghan government was in denial that the Americans were going to leave so quickly. The military was largely concerned with force protection, with covering its own butt as it was leaving. And that meant getting out as fast as possible. And that took the Afghans by surprise, definitely. As part of the evacuation effort, the Biden administration announced Operation Allies Refuge, a plan to get at-risk Afghans on flights out of the country. There was one group that was in particular danger. To wage this war, the U.S. had hired thousands of Afghan translators, interpreters, and other local partners. They were often on the front lines with U.S. soldiers. To any Afghan who dealt with the United States, they were the face of the war. Their service made them targets for kidnapping, extortion, and murder by the Taliban. In recognition of their service and the danger they faced, Congress had created a program over a decade earlier. This program would get them resettled in the U.S. These Afghans could apply for something called a Special Immigrant Visa, also known as an SIV. If there was ever a time for this program to kick into gear, it was now. In Kabul, Matt Akins spoke to two Afghan interpreters on August 15th. They both served with U.S. Special Forces and had applied for SIVs. They were waiting for years for this visa, jumping through all these bureaucratic loopholes while feeling the Taliban were getting closer and closer. So there was like they were just staying one step ahead of the insurgents. And, you know, they kind of realized at the end that they were going to be left to their own devices. And we were actually sitting there together at lunch talking about this on the afternoon the city fell. Our driver actually came in and he was like, people are saying the Taliban are inside the city. Aiken stepped out and saw armed men walking the streets. He saw members of the Taliban drive into Kabul and captured government Humvees. They were hanging out of the windows, carrying U.S.-made assault rifles. 
waving their white flags in the wind. Some crowds even cheered them on. That same day as the city was falling, I was getting a lot of messages from former interpreters and other people who were working for the U.S. government and foreigners who were asking me for help, like, how do I get out? How do I get to the airport? As the Taliban rapidly took over Afghanistan, desperate Afghans flocked to one place in Kabul, Hamid Karzai International Airport. There were just a few weeks until the deadline for flights out, August 31st. As each day passed, bigger crowds started to gather at the airport. Eventually, people started flooding the tarmac. Men, women, and children crowded around departing planes. People dangled off jet bridges, trying to force themselves into cabins. We got there and we're like, oh my God, what's happening? There's thousands of people streaming from all directions. At that moment, actually, a US C-17 was taking off on the runway and crushing people to death beneath its wheels. You know, those video images that were broadcast to the world. This morning, the flight from Kabul in one stark image. Complete and utter mayhem and chaos today at the Kabul airport. We are now playing out the visuals on your screen. They're images that have shocked the world. Desperate Afghans clinging to a US military plane. Others are seen falling to their death from the undercarriage of a plane as it becomes airborne. The US military locked down the tarmac after that. They started funneling people through an entrance called Abbey Gate. But this airport? wasn't built for a country at peace. It wasn't a facility designed for flowing crowds. The Kabul airport was built to withstand blasts from car bombs and suicide bombers. So it had high concrete walls and narrow passages. Moats, HESCOs, barbed wire, towers, you know, with machine guns in them, sandbags, like it's a, it's a fortress. That kind of defense when you push mobs of people up against it, created death traps. I mean, people would get trampled, would get crushed, they get kind of forced into these choke points. American soldiers were posted at the gate to sort through the crowds, but it was nearly impossible to check for travel documents in the mad rush of bodies. Afghan men and women did anything to get their attention, yelling at the Marines, waving their papers, or even their children in the air. The sight of these bedraggled people, men, women, and children, dusty, you know, weak from dehydration, sitting at the base of these vast concrete structures with soldiers, you know, either Taliban or the CIA-backed paramilitary unit aiming their assault rifles at them. It was just the most grotesque contrast. It was like something out of science fiction. For weeks, Aikens heard rumors that the terror group ISIS was planning something in Kabul. Then, on August 26th, he was sitting at his house when he heard an explosion. Aiken saw smoke coming from the airport a few miles away. 
That is the Pentagon confirming there has been an explosion outside Kabul airport where thousands of people have gathered to try to evacuate the country. As the staggering death toll soared to at least 170 Afghan civilians, today it was revealed the attack was carried out by a single bomber believed to be wearing a 25-pound vest of explosives. We can confirm that a number of U.S. service members were killed at the Kabul airport. The attack laid bare the chaos of the U.S. withdrawal and accelerated the evacuation. All month, Aikens remembers hearing jet engines hanging over Kabul each night. The noise only got louder as each day passed and more planes weaved in and out. The last flight was on August 30th. Well, I remember that night listening to the sound of aircraft and it seemed more intense than normal. It was everything, you know, you heard the fighter jets, you'd hear drones, you'd hear for a while helicopters and C-17s, the C-130s, it was this orchestra of, of intense noises in the sky that were, was kind of maddening because it reminded everyone the foreigners were leaving. And then all of a sudden it went quiet. And my housemate and I kind of stepped outside and we were listening like, huh, there's no more planes. And that quiet didn't last that long because then we start hearing gunfire. And the gunfire gets more and more intense until it's all around us and we can see like tracers going up in the sky. And it's the Taliban just shooting in the air to celebrate the departure of the last American. From Lawfare and Goat Rodeo, this is Allies, a podcast about how the U.S. government failed its eyes and ears in the war in Afghanistan. I'm your host, Bryce Clem. The U.S. military got thousands of people out of Kabul in August. But despite the decade-long efforts of veterans, lawmakers, and the highest-ranking officials in the military, even more were left behind. Many have gone into hiding, fearful of the Taliban seeking retribution. So how did we end up here? How was the fate of thousands of Afghans decided by which side of a wall they were on, and whether or not they had the right pieces of paper? What happened at the Kabul airport in August was the culmination of 20 years of war, a war where language and those who had access to it shaped the very way it was fought. We were the eyes and ears of U.S. troops in Afghanistan. The Taliban knew all this. That's why they used to shoot at them first. You're literally fighting blind if you do not have those interpreters with you. A war where the U.S. asked translators and interpreters to serve in the line of fire. You will hear from them on this podcast, but we can't use their full names. The Taliban will find them and will kill them. I move my family from location to location three times. There's no option for us. Some days they only find you. People are going to listen to this, and there will be blood spilt back in Afghanistan if we're not careful. We will take you from the front lines to the halls of Congress, where lawmakers created a program to protect Afghan allies. We'll tell you how it was supposed to work, 
and how it collapsed in the slow churn of bureaucracy. He was just banging his head against the wall trying to figure out how do I unstick this. The problem was not the idea. The problem wasn't the legislation. The problem was the execution. These things might seem reasonable in Washington, much less reasonable if you're trying to stay alive long enough to get the damn visas. We will seek to answer questions that still linger from two decades of war. How did this program fail? So many. Over seven episodes, we'll take you through the 20-year war. We'll explain why the SIV program was created at the height of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. You'll hear from veterans, advocates, journalists, and most importantly, Afghans, who tried to navigate a never-ending bureaucratic maze. You'll hear how four presidential administrations supported and ignored America's eyes and ears. And in the end, we'll tell you how these failures culminated in the chaos in Kabul. In this episode, we're going back to the beginning, just before 9-11. This is episode one, Faithful and Valuable Service. listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. We'll be right back. In the late 1990s, the terrorist group Al-Qaeda repeatedly attacked U.S. assets, bombing embassies in Africa and a naval ship in Yemen. The United States launched an attack this morning on one of the most active terrorist bases in the world. It is located in Afghanistan and operated by groups affiliated with Osama bin Laden, a network not sponsored by any state, but as dangerous as any we face. A few years later, in the summer of 2001, John McLaughlin was the deputy director of the CIA. He says the agency was flooded with tips from Afghanistan. So the CIA knew Al-Qaeda was planning another attack. But we had enormous amount of reporting it was kind of off the chart in terms of indicators of preparations for some kind of attack by extremists. We believe that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. A second plane drove in too, and you can see that plane coming around the building. And so when the second tower was hit, instantly, of course, I knew this was what we had been expecting. McLaughlin says the rest of that day was a blur. But he does remember connecting with President George Bush via telecom. We made clear that in our judgment this was an al-Qaeda operation and the one that we had been talking about during the summer in particular. And I, I remember and wrote down what he said. He said, form a worldwide coalition. We will find them and destroy them. Four days later, on September 15th, the president gathered his national security team at Camp David. They talked about the attack, how it was coordinated, who was behind it. But the question they were there to answer was, what should we do about it? The CIA had come prepared with a thick binder, a spiral-bound booklet I remembered quite well, with a plan we had developed and updated that week. It was a plan we'd had in preparation for a long time, but it was a plan for attacking al-Qaeda in dozens of countries around the world. And we explained it. Everyone absorbed it. 
The CIA's plan homed in on al-Qaeda's camps in Afghanistan. President Bush reconvened the group two days later in the White House. McLaughlin remembers him rattling off several decisions. The administration's war strategy. President Bush told the military to call up the reserves, the Justice Department to ready warrants and indictments, and Treasury to follow the money. And for the CIA, he said, I'm basically, I'm adopting your plan. I want you first into Afghanistan as fast as you can be. President Bush spoke to Congress and the American public on September 20th. He told the country about al-Qaeda, the terrorists who many people were hearing about for the first time. They are recruited from their own nations and neighborhoods and brought to camps in places like Afghanistan, where they are trained in the tactics of terror. The leadership of al-Qaeda has great influence in Afghanistan and supports the Taliban regime in controlling most of that country. The president also spoke about the Taliban, who called themselves the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. At the time, they were the country's government, a militant Islamic political body. The Taliban sprouted out of Afghanistan's rural Pashtun tribes. That's the country's largest ethnic group. Taliban is actually a Pashtu word, meaning students. After the Soviet occupation, there was a power vacuum in Afghanistan. So Pashtun leaders started joining forces with former Mujahideen fighters. A civil war ensued. The details are complicated. But Taliban rule offered some security. So their influence spread across the country and took hold in huge parts of Afghanistan's rural provinces. By 1996, the Taliban had grown into a vast political movement. It governed through an austere and harsh vision of Islamic law. A fact President Bush and his administration repeated in the lead up to the war. Women are not allowed to attend school. You can be jailed for owning a television. Religion can be practiced only as their leaders dictate. A man can be jailed in Afghanistan if his beard is not long enough. The United States respects the people of Afghanistan. After all, we are currently its largest source of humanitarian aid but we condemn the Taliban regime. Osama bin Laden had a long-standing alliance with the Taliban. With the FBI and CIA on his trail, bin Laden was allowed a haven in Afghanistan. So after 9-11, President Bush spoke directly to the Taliban. He demanded they hand over the leaders of al-Qaeda to U.S. authorities and close every terrorist training camp. These demands are not open to negotiation or discussion. Former CIA Deputy Director John McLaughlin again. Within 15 days, we had those two teams on the ground in northern Afghanistan. As I recall, each one had about eight people on it. A fair number of them had the local languages and weapons specialists. Our objective was to get in there as fast as we could on a chopper that was an old Soviet, I want to say, M-17 helicopter that we flew in from, from Uzbekistan through the mountains of northern Afghanistan. 
Within just a few weeks, about 300 CIA agents and special forces had landed in Afghanistan. They met with sources sprinkled across the country, Afghan village leaders and warlords who pointed them in the direction of bin Laden. McLaughlin described the scene. Uniforms went away, everyone was dressed in civilian clothes. People were riding horses. It was a remarkable thing. One reason President Bush wanted the CIA first in was because they were the only government agency that knew much about Afghanistan. Everyone has to realize that when this occurred, there weren't many people in Washington who had paid attention to Afghanistan or knew much about it. And I recall in the first, say the first month after 9-11, I was sending teams of analysts out into Washington to other agencies, carrying maps and doing a briefing on I would say the subject of what exactly is Afghanistan. McLaughlin remembers one officer spreading out a map on the blue rug of the Oval Office. He squatted between President Bush and Vice President Cheney and pointed out Afghanistan's 34 provinces. He told them about the topography, Afghanistan's deserts, river valleys, and snow-capped mountains. They talked about the bordering countries, Pakistan to the southeast, Iran to the west, Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan to the north. What immediately became clear was that Afghanistan is a very complicated place. In the fall of 2001, about two months after the first U.S. boots were on the ground, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld wrote a memo to his staff. He asked them to break down all of the languages spoken in Afghanistan. Persian, Pashto, we have a great deal of language, like we call Pashi, Kyrgyzi, Ubashi, Farsi, or Dari, they're all the same. There are two main languages spoken in Afghanistan, Pashto and Dari, which is complicated enough, and the, you know, Pashto has its own regional subdialects. That last voice you heard is Wesley Morgan. He's a freelance journalist who embedded with U.S. combat troops in Afghanistan. He saw firsthand how U.S. forces interacted with the local population. Most Afghans are multilingual and speak Dari or Pashto, but the country has almost 40 million people across cultural, ethnic, and tribal groups. In all, they speak nearly 60 languages. Wesley Morgan was in a place called the Pesh Valley. In the Pesh Valley floor, everybody speaks Pashto. A lot of the security forces speak Dari. But then the farther you go up into these side valleys north and south of the Pesh, you wind up encountering all these other languages, Kalashallah, Gambiri or Tregami, Koringali, languages that have no written form and have only a few thousand speakers, which makes them inherently really, really difficult to kind of get a grip on. But when you go up into the northeast of the country in Kunar and Nuristan, there are a bunch of other languages as well, more really than the U.S. military kind of appreciated at the time. So the military needed interpreters, translators, and local partners. Afghans who understood the languages and culture. Over the course of the next 20 years, these interpreters would prove to be essential. The number of local partners the U.S. hired would grow enormously. First tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands of Afghans. And they'd be right next to U.S. soldiers, looking for Al-Qaeda, asking locals about them, intercepting terrorist communications, breaking down messages over walkie-talkies. Later, they'd help broker huge government contracts to build roads and schools. 
Even the words interpreter and translator are too narrow to describe their role. Matt Zeller was a U.S. Army officer who advised Afghan forces. He deployed to Afghanistan in 2008 and fought side-by-side side with several Afghan interpreters and translators. We asked him, what sort of things did they teach him about Afghanistan? Zeller gave us some examples. I'm going to, your audience can't see this, but I'm certainly sitting right now with my legs crossed, right? With my left leg crossed over my right, and the bottom of my left sole is pointing at you. It's one of the worst things I can possibly do is to show you the bottom of the sole of my foot. I'm telling you to fuck off right now in Afghan culture. We Americans cross our legs all the time. I have no idea I'm, t I'm giving you the finger. There is just so much. I mean, if you go and sit into a meeting with somebody in the United States of America, and let's say it's a really important meeting, and you're going to sit around a table, where do you put the two most important people on opposite sides? Do they sit next to each other or across? Across. Yeah, in Afghan culture, they sit next to each other. So, like, it's these little nuances that if you don't know, like, if you were to sit them across from you, it's a big insult. Why? Because you're, you want to build a bond with someone or make a deal. You sit them next to each other so that they can talk and that they're equals. Sit them across from each other, it's adversarial. The, the food, you know, the culture of, like, showing up to a meeting. Here in the United States, you show up to a business meeting, you might have a quick coffee and whatever, and you get down to it. In Afghanistan, you'll talk for 30 minutes about their families before you even come to the matter at hand. To, to rush it along is, is seen as very disrespectful because it's not like you're appreciating their hospitality or just trying to get to the business. What else? Anytime an Afghan family would feed us, if we were in like a village and someone would invite us over to their homes, you know, we'd walk up and be like, wow, we're famished. That was an amazing meal. And the interpreters would pull us aside and be like, do you realize that they fed you everything that they have? They've literally cooked all the food in the house, food that was supposed to last them maybe for the next couple of months. If you don't come back tomorrow with, like, food for this family, they're going to starve. As a number of veterans, journalists, and diplomats would say, these translators were the U.S.'s eyes and ears. But at the start of the war, the U.S. had none. Because we had not expected to fight a war in Afghanistan, you had an incredible dearth of expertise on the country, an incredible dearth of language skills. That's Corey Shockey. She was on the National Security Council during President Bush's first term. I bet there were less than 20 people in the American National Security Establishment who had the language abilities to help navigate the societies in Afghanistan. We were utterly dependent on our interpreters and translators. And that need for local partners was about to grow the CIA and special forces operators would soon be joined by thousands of American soldiers. Less than a month after 9-11, President Bush announced Operation Enduring Freedom. Now, U.S. Marines were joining the fight. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations. At the same time, the oppressed people of Afghanistan will know the generosity of America and our allies. Donald Rumsfeld would later call this a new kind of war, a war that wouldn't be fought by conventional armies. Instead, an international coalition would wage it quietly, 
fighting in the shadows against terrorist cells. Secretary Rumsfeld, you know, viewed himself as a revolutionary in this regard. I remember once hearing him tell the president, these generals, they're dinosaurs. They think it takes a quarter million troops to do anything. You gotta help me push us forward into the modern ways of war. This modern war meant night raids and clandestine missions ending with airstrikes. But of course, that style of warfare is great for punitive raids. It's great for many things. It is poorly suited to stabilizing a country and holding territory in that country. And it's poorly suited to being a supportive and protective force for a population. Within just a few months, the international coalition swept through Afghanistan. By November, they captured the capital city of Kabul. U.S. forces spent the winter chasing al-Qaeda, bin Laden, and the Taliban toward the Pakistani border. But with the perpetrators of 9-11 still out there, Shaki says the war changed. The Bush administration thought the war in Afghanistan wouldn't require lots of American troops. But she says it turned out to be a bigger commitment than they expected. Creating safety throughout the country was going to require a magnitude of forces that the United States did not want to provide. And so we wanted to build an Afghan military that could increasingly take over the military responsibilities that the United States was performing in Afghanistan. So after the smoke settled from initial combat operations, the U.S. military was now in a country with no government. And many inside the Bush administration worried that Afghanistan would again become a terrorist haven. So the president gave a speech in April 2002 that outlined a change in mission. We know that true peace will only be achieved when we give the Afghan people the means to achieve their own aspirations. Peace will be achieved by helping Afghanistan develop its own stable government. Peace will be achieved by helping Afghanistan train and develop its own national army. And peace will be achieved through an education system for boys and girls, which works. So the U.S. mission was growing into a nation-building one, and every single part of it was going to require interacting with the Afghan people. Whether that meant fighting the Taliban or opening new schools or even building an entire army from scratch, the U.S. forces would need more translators, interpreters, and advisors. The war in Afghanistan was going to need more resources. But then the Bush administration found a distraction. Here's Corey Shockey again. I would say the Bush administration had persuaded itself that Afghanistan didn't require any more attention or resources than we were giving it, which is not the same thing as having one. So the Bush administration started planning another invasion. 
high-ranking officials had been ringing the alarm on Saddam Hussein, the dictator of Iraq. They said Saddam was as big a threat to the U.S. as Osama bin Laden, and some even sought to connect Saddam to al-Qaeda. We could not accept the grave danger of Saddam Hussein and his terrorist allies turning weapons of mass destruction against us, and gradually we are learning the details of his hidden weapons program. A regime that harbors ambitions for regional domination, hides weapons of mass destruction, and provides haven and active support for terrorists. So in March 2003, the U.S. invaded Iraq with more than 150,000 American soldiers. At this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. And this new campaign would require more translators and interpreters. Next time on Allies, we'll head to Iraq, and you'll hear from one interpreter who saw the invasion up close. That was an episode of Allies. Our thanks to Bryce Clem for speaking with us and letting us feature this episode. That's all for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, go ahead and subscribe. And hey, if you know a great podcast that you think we should have here, just email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. This show is produced by Zimone Perez, Maria Jimena Aragon, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. I'm Laura ross tellum Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.